The Acts of the Apostles, Chapter 2, The Day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the Holy Spirit is given. Pentecost was fully come, for it was now early morning. Pentecost was formerly known as the Feast of Weeks, and was held in the third month as a memorial of the giving of the law, when Yahweh came down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Exodus 19. The feast was held fifty days after Passover, and since the risen Lord had been with the disciples for forty days until he ascended to heaven, Pentecost occurred only ten days later. The feast was remarkable for the offering of two leavened loaves of bread, this was unusual. Leaven was not normally acceptable. But Leviticus 23 verse 17 is specific. They shall be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. The meaning is clear. At Pentecost, those who were the first fruits of preaching the gospel were baptized. The two leavened loaves speak of Jew and Gentile baptised into Christ, the leaven of sin being arrested at that point. James in chapter 1 says, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. To facilitate the effective preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit filled the twelve as they were gathered together in one place, probably the upper room. They were gathered with one accord. Unity is essential to the effective preaching of the gospel, now as it was then. And in the beginning, unity did prevail, as we see in verse 46. The Lord exhorted us to unity by loving one another, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, he said. And so the Spirit fell upon them from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, with the result that they spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. There were even cloven tongues of fire, as at the burning bush, but they were not burned. This phenomenon had also occurred at the dedication of the tabernacle in the wilderness and at the dedication of the temple. Here was the dedication of the foundation of the true house of God. And so the words of John the Baptist were fulfilled. He shall baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire in Matthew 3 verse 11. His word became as a burning fire in their hearts that could not be denied. The word sat indicates that this was not just a flash of fire, but it seems that the fire remained on them for a while, explaining why Peter was able to say, which she now see and hear, in verse 33. And what the people heard spoken were languages the disciples had not learned, and which they did not know. 
The Greek word for tongue here is glossa, from which some moderns have invented the word glossolalia for in unintelligible ramblings that deceive the hearts of the simple, but are definitely not the sound words of the Spirit's wisdom. By contrast, the true Spirit of God gave the disciples suitable words to speak that were intelligible to governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles, and brought all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you, from Matthew 10 and John 14. This is something that no modern claimant to spirit possession has ever been able to do. Acts chapter 2, verses 5 to 13. The multitude come together. The multitude included a number of devout men who were in Jerusalem at that time to worship at the feast. Many were confounded to hear the apostles speak in their own language. Here is an echo of Babel, where God confounded the language and divided the nations. Through the gospel, that process will be reversed when, instead of men making a name for themselves, God's name will be paramount. Amongst the places mentioned was Parthia, where the Tower of Babel had once stood uncompleted, a monument to the folly of ambitious men. The list of places mentioned by Luke bears a striking similarity to the list of places to which Peter was later to write his first epistle. So the multinational multitude heard in their own language the wonderful works of God. These mighty works were the birth, death and resurrection of the Son of God. Their reactions varied from doubt to mocking. Reactions repeated wherever the apostles taught, for example in Athens in Acts 17 verse 32. Nothing has changed with time. We meet the same reactions today. But let us not lose heart with perseverance, some will believe. A remnant will be saved. Acts chapter 2 verses 14 to 20 answer to the charge of drunkenness. How strange that the apostles should be accused of drunkenness. A drunk can barely speak his own language, let alone that of another. Such accusation made by those who should have known better is almost blasphemy against the Holy Spirit from Matthew 12. The reaction of the multitude called for an explanation. Once again, Peter takes the lead. He firstly answers the charge of drunkenness. It was but the third hour of the day. Nine o'clock in the morning was too early for them to be drunk. Having dealt with the charge of drunkenness, Peter takes the opportunity to preach salvation in the name of the Lord. He does so by first citing Joel chapter 2, of coming judgment. No, this was not drunkenness, 
but the fulfilling of the prophets Joel's words in Joel chapter 2 verses 28 to 32. Peter says that the days in which he spoke were the last days, that is, they were the last days of Judah's commonwealth that would end in AD 70 with destruction and slaughter wrought by the avenging Roman legions under Titus. There would be blood and fire and vapour of smoke in this bitter war of Yahweh's judgments upon his people. Before that time elapsed, the spirit given to the faithful would cause visions and dreams that would enable the faithful to prophesy. This word tells us plainly that the gift of tongues is not the unintelligible speech, but sound teaching of the word after the example of the apostles at Pentecost. What is more, this spirit would be poured out on all flesh, implying that both Jews and Gentiles would benefit, as Isaiah says in chapter 56, verse 3 and 6. Joel chapter 2, verse 23, makes it clear that there would be an early and a latter reign of spirit teaching. The early reign began with John, continued in Christ, and was extended in the Apostle's spirit-breathed teaching. Second of Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The latter reign in the first month, Pentecost was actually in the third month, the latter reign in the first month was given to the saints at their Lord's appearing. We'll flood the world with the Spirit's teaching after Messiah has been revealed to the world and the northerner driven away, Joel 2, verse 20 and verse 28. In that day, in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. For the Lord will be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness, Zechariah 13, verse 1. In AD 70 there would be no deliverance. Jerusalem became a trap from which the unbelieving would not be able to escape. Judea would pass away with the great noise of battle and the fervent heat of fire, as Peter explains in the second of Peter chapter 3. When the notable day of the Lord finally came to pass at the hand of the Roman legions, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace, like Sodom and her satellite towns in the days of Abraham. Acts chapter 2 verses 22 to 36 The Name of the Lord it was not those who kept the law who were saved, but whosoever, that is Jew and Gentile, shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 2.31 and Joel 2.32 But who is the name of the Lord for salvation? The only name given among men for salvation is Jesus, which means 
Yah shall save, or, as Peter said, shall be saved. This salvation would not come by works of law, but by calling on the name in the obedience of faith. Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth, in verse 22. This was a direct reference to Jesus Christ and no other, because this was his title written on the cross by order of Pilate. That he was of Nazareth presented a difficulty, because a common saying was, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? John chapter 1 verse 46. Yet the scripture had foreshadowed this when it was revealed, He shall be called a Nazarene. Isaiah 53 verse 2 to 3 and Matthew 2 verse 23. The title is used seven times in Acts. The disciples even became known later as the sect of the Nazarenes, Acts 24 verse 5. This Jesus was approved of God by signs as was Moses before Pharaoh. In the same way the apostles were also approved. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Hebrews 2 verse 4. Peter says these signs God did by him, by which they should have deduced that Jesus is Emmanuel. Isaiah seven fourteen, For God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. By this means, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God was fulfilled in all that was done, even in crucifixion by wicked hands. The Son of Man goeth as was determined, determined in Isaiah 53 and Zechariah and so on. Crucifixion is the most terrible of deaths, and it was very bold of Peter to say, Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. But God hath raised him up, providing incontrovertible proof that he is the Saviour. It was not possible that he should be holden of death, because the continued death of a sinless man is not just Romans 3, verse 25 to 26. Peter says, having loosed the pains of death, in echo of Psalm 116, verse 3. The expression relates to the birth pangs of a new child born from the womb of the grave, so that the Lord is the first born from the dead, Colossians 1.18. Resurrection. David had foretold his Lord's resurrection in Psalm 16. Here was the Old Testament proof necessary as a basis for Jewish belief. Paul also uses this psalm in the synagogue at Antioch to prove the resurrection of Christ, that's in Acts 13. Our faith, too, is established by this fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy, by which Jesus Christ confirmed the promises made unto the fathers, Paul says in Romans 15, verses 8 and 9. 
the psalmist's expression, Thine Holy One, is drawn from Deuteronomy 33, verse 8, where Moses, in blessing the tribe of Levi, says, Let thy Thummim and thy Urim be with thine Holy One, whom thou didst prove at Massah. Evidently, Jesus' resurrection, following complete obedience to his Father's will, qualified him to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek with the future Thummim and Urim. Having said so, Peter began to speak freely of the patriarch David. Patriarch because he was the first father of the line of kings of Judah. Peter's hearers were probably agitated by now, so he changes the subject, only to come back to it with greater force later in his discourse. He says that David's Psalm 16 could not refer to David himself, because David's tomb was evidence that David was still dead. Jesus of Nazareth also had been dead and buried in hell. Hades, that is, the underworld, the grave. But unlike David's, Jesus' sepulchre was definitely empty. Therefore David was a true prophet when he spoke of the resurrection of Messiah, knowing that God had sworn to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. The second of Samuel 7. It may be that by the use of the word translated bowels in Samuel, the Spirit was indicating that this son would not just be from David's loins, but from the womb of a Jewish virgin descended from David. Psalm 132 verse 11, for example, says, Of the fruit of thy body, thy womb, will I set upon thy throne. And see also Luke 1 verse 42. God had sworn with an oath to David. Only to Abraham and David were such oaths made of God. Genesis 22, 16 to 18. Conviction began to grow in the minds of Peter's hearers that rumours of Jesus' resurrection were true. It remained for Peter to bring forward one final proof. Peter finished his reference to Psalm 16, verse 11, by saying that Jesus was at the right hand of God exalted. The word exalted is taken from Isaiah 52, verse 13. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. This idea refers back to Isaiah's vision. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, Isaiah 6, verse 1. So by his resurrection and ascent to the right hand of his father, the Lord had received the exaltation which the Spirit of Christ in the prophets had promised to him. As a result of his exaltation, the disciples had received the Holy Spirit. 
There could be no denying this, for the people saw and heard it. Here was proof indeed that the Lord had been raised, and therefore his is the name of salvation. Still, Peter turns again to their scriptures to clinch the point. After all, a threefold cord is not easily broken. This time Peter cites David Psalm 110 verse 1, which the Lord had so effectively used to silence his enemies in Matthew 22 verse 41 to 46. The psalm not only promises that Messiah would sit on God's right hand, but that he would do so because of the actions of his enemies in Israel. These, the psalm continues, would become subject to David's son as his footstool when he comes again to reign in Zion as high priest of the order of Melchizedek. The citation of this psalm led Peter to the inevitable conclusion of whom the name of salvation is. God, he says, hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. The evidence of Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven, coupled with undeniable scripture support, made Peter's case overwhelming. The Apostle Paul similarly uses the resurrection to confirm Jesus Christ's divine authority in Romans 1 verses 3 and 4, saying that he was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Pricked in the heart. They were pricked in their heart. This phrase indicates not just a tinge of guilt, but that their guilt was deeply felt, for the same word is used in the phrase, a spear pierced his side in John 19 verse 34. Troubled in heart, they responded to Peter's preaching of the gospel of the saving name, saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That is, to be saved. Without any prevarication, Peter responded, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. In Scripture, the word repent means not to be sorry, but to change one's mind or purpose. The sign of this being baptism in water, where the believer dies to his old way of life and is, in a figure, raised to a new life of holiness and righteousness. Of course, water is but the medium. True baptism is an immersion into the only name given under heaven, whereby we might be saved. This is the name, Yahweh, I will be, whom I will be. This is the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. For the Father's name is firstly fulfilled in Emmanuel, God with us, and subsequently is given to us through the Spirit's teaching, 
Matthew 28, verse 19. In this way, we are begotten of water and spirit, Christ says to Nicodemus. Or to put it another way, he that believeth, and that he means begotten of spirit, and is baptized, shall be saved. Mark 16, verse 16. Jeremiah explained that remission of sins, together with God's law written in the heart, is the essential element of the new covenant. That's Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. This is the passage alluded to by the Lord in the upper room when he said, This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Those who truly repent and are baptized shall receive the gift, the gift, the Greek word doria, of Holy Spirit. The gift given to the faithful is, of course, salvation. The Lord himself said to the woman at Jacob's well, If thou knewest the gift, doria, of God, he would have given thee living water. The water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. John 4, verses 10 to 14. Paul says, But not as the offence, so also is the free gift. For if through the offence of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift, Doria, by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offences unto justification. He also says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, Doria again. For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift, Doria, of God. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift, Doria again, the second of Corinthians 9, verse 15. The promise of salvation. Having digressed to convince his hearers that the only name given for salvation is centred in Jesus of Nazareth, Peter now returns to Joel chapter 2. He says, For the promise of salvation, verse 21, the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. That's in Joel 2, verse 21 also. That the promise Peter speaks of is salvation is readily appreciated from the context in both Joel and Acts, and from Peter's repetition of this teaching in his second epistle, where he writes, According as his divine power the Holy Spirit, hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, repentance, whereby are given unto us great and precious promises. By these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. This is the gift of Holy Spirit. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, or as Peter has said at Pentecost, save yourselves from this untoward generation. And we're citing the second of Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. Paul says that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Galatians 3 verse 14. Obviously here, the promise of the Spirit is the fulfilment of the blessing or promise made to Abraham. Peter's words at Pentecost amount to a partial fulfilment of the prophecy. For the promise was given to that generation of Jews that heard him, and to their children. But then the gospel was taken to the Gentiles afar off, as Moses and Isaiah had foretold. Moses said, I make this covenant and this oath with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day, the Gentile believers. Deuteronomy 29, verse 14 and 15. To which Isaiah added, Peace. Peace to him that is afar off, the Gentile believers, and to him that is near, the Jews, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. Isaiah 57, verse 19. Paul brought these words together when he said, Lo, we turn to the Gentiles, in Acts 13, 46 and 28, verse 28, and wrote, But now in Christ Jesus ye, Gentiles, who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 13 and 17. Thankfully, this promise of salvation for Gentile believers is not limited to two generations, for Peter adds, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And we are called. Peter's pleading with his fellow Jews came to an end with his appeal to save yourselves from this untoward generation, which he knew would end in blood, fire and vapour of smoke. The Apostle Paul also quotes this same passage from Joel chapter 2 when he writes to the Ecclesia in Rome, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all them that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10 verse 1 and verse 9 to 13. What Peter had done at Pentecost was reveal who the name of the Lord for salvation is. The name Jesus had not been revealed to Israel before. 
the three thousand who were baptized that day received Peter's word gladly. Some uncertainty might have been expected, given the opposition of the rulers and the natural resistance to change from law to grace. As it was an immediate and joyful response that followed Peter's discourse, it reveals something of the people's dissatisfaction with the current system and the power of the scripture brought forth to support the resurrection. Here was the beginning of the greater works the Lord had said his disciples would do once he had ascended to heaven, John 14, verse 12. The number of believers increased very rapidly in those early days, as we find in Acts. It is slower today, sadly, but that is because the way of life has been corrupted and people are disillusioned. The phrase, Apostles' doctrine, which Peter uses, surely indicates the first statement of faith with its consequent moral obligations of fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. The extent of their fellowship is seen in the remarkably selfless and generous sharing where we are told that they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. With the words, Distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality, Romans 12 verse 13, the Apostle Paul encouraged the same spirit of sharing and supporting the needy to continue to this day. Meanwhile, many wonders and signs were done by the Apostles. Only an, a minority in any ecclesia were given spirit gifts by the laying on of the hands of the apostles. The gifts were for the benefit of the body of Christ, not for personal benefit. And generally a brother, and sometimes a sister, in Christ received only one gift, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 to 11, and verse 28 to 31. These possessors of a gift then became the starred eldership in their ecclesia in those early days, as we find in Revelation 1 verse 20. And then chapter 2 of Acts closes on the uplifting note of unprecedented unity amongst the believers meeting each day in the temple to preach and worship and according to their Lord's command, to break bread in remembrance of him from house to house, literally, at home. Sadly, this practice became subject to abuse, particularly at Corinth, as we read in the first of Corinthians chapter 11. As the gospel went out into all the world, it became more appropriate to hold the breaking of bread weekly on the first day of the week. It would then coincide with the Lord's appearing to his disciples after the resurrection. Mm -hmm.